Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston, and on today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive and analyse our world of business and politics. Now, in the aftermath of the pandemic, lots and lots of workers have grown really tired of not getting the recognition and indeed the pay for putting in those extra hours. They're saying no to burnout. It's called quiet quitting. You'll see it on TikTok. And I'll be joined by HR expert Caroline Reedy from HR Suite to explain all. As the EU takes on the challenge of cleaning up the internet to make it safer for us all, Financial Times journalist Javier Espinanza will take us through the efforts of the big platforms to stave off more EU regulations. And finally, Germany, the great barometer of the European project. Its current woes are indicative of what countries are facing all over Europe. We'll examine what Germany are doing to help people through the energy and cost of living crisis with author and journalist John Kampfner. He's going to take us through the current solutions and what keeps Germany at the centre of decision making in Europe. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. That was the iconic Dance of the Nights from Romeo and Juliet and of course the famed theme tune from The Apprentice. So if you've ever thought about quiet quitting and want to avoid getting quietly fired, it's the TikTok sensation that's questioning modern work practices. Quiet quitting has been gaining traction post-pandemic as employees evaluate how they work and more importantly, why they work. To shed more light on the topic, I'm delighted that Caroline Reedy from HR Suite is with me now. Caroline, welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks so much, Mandy. Delighted to chat to you. Now, first of all, what is quiet quitting? Because unbelievably, I hadn't heard it until a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I suppose it's one of these big sensations now that a lot of people are talking about post-pandemic, post, I suppose, summer as we're coming back into the new world of work. And a lot of people are talking about the fact that people are just doing the bare minimum and they're really valuing work-life balance And the concept of quiet quitting is I'll do the bare minimum, but I won't do any more than that. So things like working out of hours, things like maybe uh, switching the laptop back on after you might have your dinner because you feel you need to finish something to a better standard. All of that now is being shelved in this concept of quiet quitting. Yeah. So when I looked at it, I just read it in a kind of very straight way. It's just about doing the bare minimum, avoiding going above and beyond. But what is causing it, Caroline? I suppose for a lot of people, you had social connectedness in work and you had a sense of purpose, a sense of connectedness with your colleagues. And ultimately, I suppose, as we've gone through a pandemic combined with that, we've also now a scenario where people really enjoyed a new level of work-life balance and people are lacking social connectedness and purposefulness in the organisation. And also they're saying, well, I really want what I had during the pandemic. (laughs) I really want that work-life balance back again. Yeah. And is it a generational thing? Is there a particular cohort? Who is doing this? 
I think it's possibly um, kind of widespread now throughout the workforce. And it's something that organisations are starting to readdress the balance by looking at things like how can we get people more connected? How can we develop that social? How can we ensure the culture is permeating as it would ordinarily by osmosis? And how are we also going to help train managers better to manage people more proactively, to build that collegiality and build that team spirit and also that sense of purpose so they feel that, you know, they're part of an organisation, they've got a sense of purpose and that their team is reliant on them. But I suppose we also have to couple that with the right to disconnect the um, whole concept that during COVID people were overly uh, compensating for the fact they were working from home where they were logging back in and, Mm. you know, really feeling that they needed to be very much seen as online. So this is the opposite now Mm. that we're starting to see. So hopefully I'm sure we'll land at her balance once we start to um, help managers, I suppose, be more proactive at communication, helping employees see the sense of purpose, helping build that team and that collegiality that was naturally there before. Yeah, as you say, it is probably there's an element of rebalancing happening quite naturally. Um, but it is probably causing a lot of businesses quite some concern. I've spoken to many small uh, businesses and large ones who are really struggling with getting people back to the office. Do you think that this is part of that? I think um, for organisations that are thinking that, you know, they're going to press the switch and everybody's going to be back in on a certain date, I think a lot of organisations have realised that employees in this challenge of attraction and retention are not going to accept that. So we see a lot of people now that if they don't get the hybrid that they want and if they don't get that flexibility that they feel they need to have that work-life balance and balance life with work rather than work being what caused the shots and then life has to come secondary. I think a lot of organisations will lose the balance, you know, between attraction, retention and what does the business need and require. And always, I think, you know, you've always got to say, look, can the business facilitate this? Mm. Some businesses can, more can but we've definitely seen during COVID a huge amount more businesses than originally anticipated because they had to realise that this is possible. But now what we need to do is make sure that we maintain productivity so productivity doesn't drop because that's not going to be good for employees who will want more flexibility, nor is it going to be good for organisations in particularly challenging and competitive times. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and I'm talking to Caroline Weedy from the HR Suite about quiet quitting. That's a very interesting point that you made about finding that right balance, you know, because if workers are trying to hold on to that work-life balance that they gained during COVID, is that such a bad thing? I think it's a really, really positive thing, Mandy. And I think what it's done is it's helped employees Um, be a lot more uh, content in their uh, work environment if they're getting the balance that suits them once the organisation can accommodate it. I also think uh, people are valuing that flexibility and as a consequence of that, that's really good retention tool. On the 
opposite though, you know, because we don't have people in, particularly new people who are starting in the organization or, you know, people who might need more coaching or performance management, they can get lost in the fact they're working from home. And that feeling of isolation or that feeling of a lack of support can be a concern for them. So we have to, I suppose, again, focus on are we training managers to manage in this new hybrid? And whether you were managing completely remote or you were managing with everybody back in the office, they were definitely much easier than mm. managing hybrid, which is a bit of both. Mm. So the bit of both requires, you know, a much uh, bigger focus, particularly for things like managing meetings, making sure people don't feel that that proximity bias is in place where somebody just because they're in the office might be getting more communication or hearing about new or, you know, projects that might be coming up. And as a consequence, they feel that they're getting advantageous treatment. So we need to change how we're managing, how we're communicating and how we're, I suppose, engaging with the employees to ensure that we readdress some of those concerns that might be out there right now. Yeah. uh, But just say you're uh, a manager and you're you're trying to bring people back into the office and you're trying to do just that, kind of provide them with training that might be outside of working hours. Um, Is there any rules for that? Like do 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 employees have to attend things that are structured outside that nine to five day? Yeah, great question, Mandy. So the employees have the right to disconnect, which means that the Organisational Working Time Act already says the breaks and the rest periods people are entitled to. So, for example, when you finish work today, you're entitled to an 11 hour break to when you start again tomorrow. But the that was always in place since 1997, 94. You know, it's back mm. into the, you know, we've, we've strong legal foundations in terms of the contract of employment and the organisation of working time. But now, additional to that, people have the right to disconnect, which means that it's additionally spotlighting the fact that people shouldn't, unless there's real exceptional circumstances, shouldn't be contacted outside their working hours. And I think a lot of employees, because of that, and they're feeling that they're on solid ground from that perspective, that they can't be, you know, victimized or penalized, that they feel, well, look, I'm only going to do the bare minimum then. And to be fair, people who work exceptionally hard during the working hours that productivity might be exceptionally high and perfectly acceptable. Mm. But we need to make sure we're monitoring that and we're supporting employees in that regard so that they don't feel disconnected and they don't feel that they're not being supported. Carolyn, you're obviously working on both sides of this. Could this be about the war for talent, the great resignation, you know, employees feeling a lot more empowered and maybe that it's swung too far the other way where managers actually can't fulfil their productivity because they just have to deal with these types of issues now in a way that they didn't have to before. I think, Mandy, that's like probably, you know, one of the real hubs of this, that being a manager has got more challenging Mm. because more time needs to be spent managing than being maybe an operational manager doing, you know, a dual function. And ultimately, I suppose there's a skill in that management, you know, of people, you know, making sure they're communicated with, making sure that they're um, given feedback, making sure they feel supported and they're, they're being coached. And if we're not, I suppose, making sure the managers have the time and the skills to do that well, then in turn, there could be issues around retention that could easily be resolved and issues around productivity that we could increase if we did focus on those areas. 
Where do you see this all landing, Caroline? Um, if we've got to a stage where we kind of do recognise that work-life balance is important for us as employees and employers are struggling to try and get back to that mass productivity that they had pre-pandemic, where do you see us arriving? Is this just a craze? Is it a fad? Will we pass beyond and get back to how it was before, do you think? I don't think we will, Mandy. I think people have very firmly set out the stall that people want to work less. Um, we need to ensure people are productive when they're working. So productivity is increased. But overall, people want flexibility and they overall want to work less. And I think if we were to fast forward in time, I think that's what we're going to have. I think people are going to work less hours, but we need to make sure that there's really strong managers and really strong productivity measures in place to ensure we're increasing productivity. One of the studies that's happening at the moment uh, that's been trialed is the four day week. So people are working um, no more hours. It's only four days. Um, but the idea is that the same productivity can be achieved over those four days. So I think we're going to see a lot more of those type of trials and studies because that's what I suppose the workforce want. And we need to respond because that's the future work that's coming down the tracks or we'll be left behind. I saw some figures uh, from the UK which reported that only 9% of workers there were engaged or enthusiastic about their work. Is there any empirical Irish evidence about our workforce, how they feel? I think you've got lots of different surveys which give you, you know, similar on different, you know, depending on the survey and what specifically has been focused on. But what we are seeing is the huge focus on the fact people are not staying in jobs. And that, you know, I think is a strong message to say, OK, that's really, you know, strong evidence to back up the fact that as organisations, if they've managed that connectedness and that uh, coaching and that minding of their staff well during the last couple of years, they have a much more loyal workforce. We have to accept now that pay and benefits are, you know, competitive in an organisation. And the next thing then when people are happy with their pay and benefits is that flexibility, that work-life balance you know, that we're respecting their time outside of work, et cetera. And I think more and more we're seeing, you know, jobs being advertised to reflect four day weeks or to reflect um, flexi time um, and that hybrid remote working. That's very much part of the landscape right now. Just to finish up then, Caroline, final piece of advice for somebody who's in an organisation working, feels that they're being stretched just that little bit too far, doesn't want to leave the company. What advice would you give them? I think have a chat. I think, you know, a lot of managers are so busy doing something else that they may not spot or notice this. And it was was possibly a lot easier to spot the person who was struggling for whatever reason when we were more in the office and, you know, you were having those chats more informally. So I would definitely uh, be honest and open with your manager and let them know the challenges you're experiencing. And by doing so, I suppose you're giving the organisation an opportunity to address and support you in whatever way you need, because, you know, psychic communication doesn't work. We (laughs) see it all the time where somebody presumes the other person knows and they're not doing something about it. But ultimately, we need to say it so somebody actually has that knowledge and that opportunity to really address it. Absolutely. Communication is key, as always. That was Caroline Reedy from HR Suite. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. Thanks, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up next, Big Brother's watching you, but who's watching Big Brother? Find out after the break. 
You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Brussels has become the world's digital Uber regulator, as well as introducing GDPR. It now has a pair of laws which the European Parliament passed in July of this year. The Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act will start entering into force in 2023 and they are set to change the operating landscape for platforms everywhere. And let's face it, they've largely had it all their own way up to now. Here to decode it all for us now is Javier Espinoza from the Financial Times. Javier, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thank you very much. Now, Javier, the internet and tech companies by extension have sort of evolved rather than been constructed. So what are the EU trying to do here? Um, let's start with the Digital Service Act. What what does what is that intended to deal with? Yes, and just as a bit of a preamble to the whole thing, it's the first time that the EU is actually updating the rules in two decades. And as you said at the beginning, these platforms have just grown tremendously. And only in recent history with COVID, we saw how dependent we were on on platforms and things like, you know, Facebook and WhatsApp and communications. So uh, regulators here are seeing the need even more now to uh, sort of set the new rules to protect uh, European citizens and hopefully they still create this Brussels effect so that others follow. But, uh, you know, we'll have to see. When it comes to the Digital Services Act, what the European Union is trying to do is to set the rules on how platforms like Twitter, uh, you know, social media platforms where people post a lot of things that might be harmful or illegal, you know, is how these platforms need to police the Internet in the same way if you are in a public square, offline, there are rules, you know, you cannot shout uh, obscenities at someone because, you know, you'll you get told off or the authorities will come or someone will report you in the same way. With the DSA, regulators are setting the rules on how quickly platforms should take down content. The sort of, for instance, if you have a post on social media, you can set flags as a company or allow consumers to quickly flag content that they think might be misinformation. We mm. saw during COVID and also during the Russian-Ukrainian uh, war, there's a lot of, you know, fake news out yes. there. And so platforms will need to make it easier. And so that is going to be really helpful in terms of dealing with things like misinformation in election campaigns, dealing with hate speech, even illegal goods and advertising. So what of the other side of it, the gatekeeping and the Digital Markets Act? Could you just talk to us a little bit about that? Yes, so it's a bit of a double whammy when it comes to these huge, enormous companies. So the Digital Markets Act is now to do with competition. And what has happened is that really, technically, a handful of companies, all based in the United States, have gained enormous control because they had like first moving advantage. They were there first. They started taking, uh, you know, gaining more and more ground and setting their own rules. That's why they have this term gatekeeper. So they're both setting the rules, but also uh, an actor in on the platform, mm. like for example, Amazon. You could say, you know, that they they are both selling their own products, but they also own the platform in which they sell their products. So this 
gives them an enormous uh, advantage. And so Javier, the end, they, they seem to be particularly um, annoyed and concerned about how they're being designated. There are different tiers, aren't there, for how companies are treated. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Uh, it, this is to do with their size and how big they have become. And yes, they are different. there are different tiers, but if you are designated a so-called gatekeeper, what that means is that you're going to have to comply with all the burdens of this regulation. For example, mm. you will be prohibited from ranking your own services at the expense of your rivals on your own platform. So you, you, it really, the law comes tough, comes down hard on you, if that is the case. And they have alleged they are fighting this the nomination for sure. Now, how are those companies? So all of these kind of tech companies are built to literally move fast and break things. How are they sort of dealing with the first time that they have huge regulation at this scale? They are hiring an army of very savvy, expensive lawyers who know how the system works, what the rules are how they can throw sand in the wheel of justice so that they can delay it. So just to give you an example, uh, Google has three different antitrust cases that they are fighting with the commission uh, before the EU court, amounting about 10 billion euros. And still, they have not yet paid a penny Mm. because the process is still going on. So with the DMA, the Digital Market Act, the European Union is telling telling these companies it what you're doing it's illegal from the go from the onset rather than having to prove that they have done something wrong. This is what they think is the revolutionary part of uh, these new rules. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Javier Espinoza from the Financial Times. Javier, that issue of who will police this, whether well, regulations come into play, that's fine. But who will actually um, do the monitoring and challenging these? Is it at member state level or is there some one-stop shop body set up at EU level? This will depend on the size of the company and on how, how big the issue is. So, for example, if you're a massive you know, GAFA, kind of Google, uh, Facebook type and someone complains that you're not doing your job properly, this will be at EU level. But, uh, you know, at at more granular, smaller kind of issues, this will be dealt at member states level. But regulators and these companies are actually engaging with each other with the hope, and I've spoken to people here in Brussels who tell me the hope is that, you know, as these new rules come into force, There's a lot of sort of self-monitoring. Hopefully it will be a combination of uh, self-policing that you're doing what you're supposed to do, comply with the the rules um, at member states level and at EU level. It will be very interesting to see, and I'm sure there will be uh, complaints uh, from rivals of these companies or even from uh, citizens themselves that, you know, they are not doing a good enough job. Yeah, I asked that particular question because 
um, the Data Protection Commission is based here in Ireland, as are a large amount of the big tech companies. So do you see um, a new body being set up or is there going to be, is everything going to be filtered through the data protection, which is, is based here in Ireland? I don't think that there is an appetite to have new institutions being created. I think uh, in the case of Ireland in particular, it's going to be enforced by the existing authorities uh, over there. But as I have reported and and others, uh, there is some criticism that the authorities uh, over there in in Ireland are not doing enough to police these these companies. Uh, Some argue or or fear that it's because these, uh, you know, are massive employers, you know, mm. Apple employs uh, hundreds of people just in court, for example, and and have, you know, sustained sort of like the lives of like middle class citizens, etc. So, you know, it's, it's a bit tricky when it comes to the Irish enforcement of these rules. Yeah, we've certainly heard those criticisms of, of bottleneck. You could argue also, uh, just to put the other side across, is that the lack of you know a regulatory framework has kind of made that very difficult. Um, just just on the, the issue of the framework that has been introduced, if we look at GDPR, um, which has been successful, a nightmare for many of us trying to deal with it, but we have come to terms with it and, and it's in place. Um, look over at America and they're now introducing their own level of GDPR and the UK themselves have kind of uh, brought in uh, and introduced a GDPR light. Do you see that Europe is becoming the template for regulating the internet and that it's the model by accident rather than design? I think to a degree regulators in Brussels actually want to be by design the the sort of a template for others to follow. They feel quite proud to get calls from, you know, places like Singapore mm. or Canada or Chile to ask them, you know, we want to copy your own version of your digital rules because this is how we want to uh, regulate the sector. That That's one part. Also, in some cases, when they make changes to GDPR or when they make when they introduce these new rules, which will come into effect next year, the companies themselves make the changes, not just for the 27 member states uh, of the European Union, but they sometimes announce these changes on a, on a global basis. Mm. However, it's not only, it's not just easy just to say, oh, you know, it's the Brussels effect and Brussels is leading the way, because uh, politicians, legislators in the U.S. currently are really uh, struggling to pass similar type DMA rules mm. that would apply to their American companies, to Google and Facebook. So, you know, it, it's a bit of a patchy sort of landscape for the so-called Brussels effect. Yeah, it kind of suits as well. America is very polarised politically to try and play a sort of an arbitration role. China has disqualified itself sort of through its own international reputation. But Brussels, and you mentioned earlier, they're all lawyering up now. They're sort of well used to dealing with big lobbying groups and stuff. So so maybe they're best place to do it. Just one um, thing I wanted to get your views on, Javier, was the enforcement of GDPR, because I was looking at some figures that were produced by a British uh, law firm last year. Since 2018, penalties amounting to nearly 1.7 billion 
which represents 1,200 cases. Um, the cumulative fines uh, that were meted out to these firms. Now, that sounds like quite a large amount, but actually it only equates to one thousandth of their collective uh um, profits last year. So it sounds like GDPR is good. It is being policed, but it really is still just a drop in the ocean. I think the, this comes back to this core criticism of what the EU does, which is that the signs that they impose on companies are, according to some, just like the tax or the cost of doing business. You know, it's like the the uh equivalent of you drive a lorry and then you you know you park it illegally and you just pay the ticket and off you go and so this is going to be a big uh, problem as i said google has paid zero euros to the eu and even when they do pay it's not going to hurt their uh businesses in 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 any way so what they should hope for is not just uh you know the the big numbers of fines in the billions uh, on these rules, but a, a meaningful change in behavior that ultimately, let's, let's just remind us why they are doing this, leads to the European Googles and European Amazons and Facebooks of, of this world. What they want to do ultimately is to foster uh, innovation, but uh, the process uh, is moving frustratingly slowly, according mm. to some. Final question, Javier. Um, from, from a consumer and user point of view, how long will it be before we start to see these regulations have effect in our hands when we're using our devices? I think that we shouldn't hold our breath. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a very painful process, as I was saying. You know, they were approved, as you, were, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning, uh, in July. But the companies themselves are not going to be nominated, even gatekeepers, until maybe the spring of next year. And then there's a period when we're going to start seeing maybe some uh, uh, cases to test this law. And the companies will definitely uh, take uh, legal action when they feel that they are being treated unfairly. So unfortunately, it's not going to be a quick fix. But when I put this to officials here, they tell me, you know, we have experienced regulating sectors. They have regulated before the big tech sectors, the telecoms industry and the financial services industry. So, it, it, and, and they point to some success there in those industries. So we should cut them some slack uh, and wait and see. Well, yeah, as you say, it's a painful process. We have to start somewhere. But Javier, we'll be back to you when those test cases start. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Javier Espinosa from the Financial Times. Javier, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is Mandy Johnson with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, Germany holds a significant position in the European project. Find out why after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, why can't we all just be more like the Germans? It's a gripe that you'd often hear, particularly when we're 
criticising our politicians for public policy or the lack of it. But like every member state, Germany is now suffering several crises at the same time. So it got us thinking about how they're managing to get through it and what, if anything, we can learn from them. Someone who knows a great deal about Germany is John Kampfner. He started his career with the Daily Telegraph. He's worked in East Berlin covering the unification of Germany and then in Moscow at the time of the collapse of Soviet communism. He then went on to become chief political correspondent at the Financial Times and political commentator for the BBC's Today programme and Newsnight. I could go on and on, (laughs) but he's also written several books, including one called Why Germans Do It Better. And that's why he's joining me now. John, you're very welcome. Hi there. John, I just referred to that book uh, that you released back in 2020, Why the Germans Do It Better. The success and failures are highlighted in that book. Um, And Germany in in general gets a lot of respect for its own economic model, its own ability to manage its affairs. But it's facing a lot of problems at the moment. Energy, 40-year high inflation, wage pressures. Are you still of the view that they do it better? How do you think they're handling things at the moment? It's quite funny because um, some people said, oh, we really like the book, but we didn't like the, the title. It's too sort of hyperbolic. It's too sort of um, uh, black and white. And to which I said, yeah, sure, you're absolutely right. The more accurate title would be why the Germans do most things better much of the time. But that kind of... <laughs> That's not going to sell many so books, well. though. <laughs> exactly. And one thing it has not done better, and I'm so relieved um, that I stated it in terms in the book, was Russia policy Mm. um, and policy more broadly in that region. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the big caveat to say is, uh, talking from where I'm in London, the Brits have had a hideous, truly hideous record for the 30 years since the collapse of communism and and the Soviet Union of uh, turning London into the great money laundering capital of the world. I mean, there was no crook that was not worth servicing in terms of property, uh, tax avoidance, uh, private schooling, you name it, there was a Brit who was keen to make money Mm. doing that for them. So whenever, and I think there is a, um, a positive juxtaposition in terms of the way Britain has come to the aid of Ukraine, uh, before and and since uh, Putin's invasion, I always caveat it by saying, yeah, but hold on a second. We we absolutely had the, the filthiest hands um, before all of that. Now, the Germans have always had a complicated relationship. I'm currently writing a book on the history of Berlin, and it's so interesting how the history of Berlin is kind of intertwined mm. with Russians. I mean, you know, uh, the whole sort of Russian elite in the 19th century was basically populated by Germans. And after the, even before the Russian Revolution, but certainly after the Russian Revolution, Berlin was awash with Russians. Then you throw into that the hideous um, crimes that Germany committed on the Eastern Front uh, of the war. I mean, the the Holocaust goes without saying. Um, Germany's approach on the Eastern Front was by many factors more barbaric um, than it was on the Western Front, because underlay that was a sort of Aryan idea of Slavs are a kind of lower species. So ever since the war, the Germans have been absolutely doing everything they can to apologize to Russia and to bring Russians closer. Uh, There was this Willy Brandt, the chancellor um, in the 70s and the 80s had this thing, Ostpolitik, a sort of politics orientated towards the East. 
and so much of it was good and great. But the, the big lesson that Germany failed to learn was to differentiate between uh, an apology to the people of the Soviet Union, which was not, by the way, the same as Russia. Um, uh, you know, a huge amount of Ukrainians suffered at the hands of, of, of Germany, uh, as did Russians, as did people from other parts of the former Soviet space. But they confused that with being all nicey-nicey to the Kremlin. Mm. And um, ever since Gerhard Schroeder left power in uh, 2005, uh, handing on to Angela Merkel, but he did so while negotiating his position uh, running uh, the board of what was going, what was Nord Stream One, the first uh, gas pipeline from Russia into Germany and beyond. It was an entirely disreputable approach that he took, and Merkel could have, should have diversified mm. Germany mm -hmm. away from this overdependency on Russia, both in terms of economic resilience. I mean, it was so naive to think, oh, well, because we're economically intertwined, we're always going to be spiritually intertwined, and they're never going to use energy as a form of blackmail or, or pressure. Um, that was naive. But also the idea that <clears throat> by integrating Russia, and it's the same problem we're facing with China, <clears throat> excuse me, by integrating Russia, uh, same problems we're facing with China, in terms of you somehow make countries more Western oriented mm. by having more economic links. Again, mm. that was naive, but we all suffered from that. So it's been this whole litany of mistakes that got Germany to the place it was, which was up until this summer, uh, a really dangerous dependency on, on Russia when it came to politics, but also to energy. Yeah, like, so they've been very naive when it comes to um foreign policy in terms of geopolitical warfare. They've been very politically naive when it comes to energy security being used as warfare, but they're not alone in that. Like, you know, most of Europe have been very naive in that regard. Tell us about what they've done, though, to try and get back on track, because we're really trying to look at mm. what are the things that a country like Germany does to kind of fix the problems and how are they so good at sort of bouncing back when crises like this hit them? Yeah, and that this is the great you know, every time Germany, and I've seen it so many times in 1999, Germany was called the sick man of Europe. Every time Germany is regarded as 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 uh, as having a problem, they sort it out. Sick man of Europe, 1999, they carried out economic um, reforms. Uh, terrible on tech and digitization. Well, you know, Europe's one of Europe's worst broadbands. What do they do? They they sort it out. Terrible um, energy dependency on Russia. What do they do in the few months, the six months since? Putin's invasion. Mm. Um, Germany has gone from 55% dependency on Russian gas to, to pretty much zero. Mm. And now how the have they done that? Where, where did the immediate diversification come from? So it came from a number of things. The main thing it came from was storage. Mm. It was building up reserves. Now, obviously, in any summer, particularly the very warm and dry summer uh, that we've had all over Europe, people use far less energy than they do in the winter. But what the Germans did was absolutely to, from a very early stage, to start increasing uh, storage facilities. And I haven't seen the very latest figure, but as of a few days ago, they'd got it to 85%, mm. which is pretty remarkable, which means they're only 15% short. Now, can you find, and they're probably going to get a little bit more because it's not going to get cold for another month or so, um, uh, can you find 10 or 12% uh, short um, um, cuts 
in your energy provision. Yes, of course, anybody could. So they've, uh, you know, switching off government buildings after a certain time, swimming pools, a couple of degrees less warm than they used to be. Shops are told to close that have uh, been advised or, or, or uh, required to shut their doors when the weather gets cold rather than heating them and and cutting down in, in warm time on air conditioning. There's some very basic stuff yeah. that people can do without affecting real quality of life. It doesn't affect schools, doesn't affect hospitals, doesn't affect old people's homes or anything that's important. Yeah, so John, they've been doing this for the last number of months and they've been applying it at government level and at consumer level and now we have Europe telling the rest of Europe uh, that's exactly what you need to do. The Germans just started earlier. I, I always think of the Germans at European level like this. You know, we're all there to follow an EU framework or rule book, but they're the ones who are capable of writing it. But as you say, they have had failings, they're slow to modernise digitally and they've also had um, a huge problem historically diversifying when it comes to industry. Why is that? Because they were doing so well Mm -hmm. and they were assuming if it ain't broke, don't fix it. All their eggs in one basket. Yeah, I mean, there was a an assumption which, I mean, all historical cycles end but nobody thinks they're going to end when they do Mm. and I was fortunate to be in East, but be posted to East Berlin when the wall came down. That system collapsed. Germany unified, unified, by the way, incredibly coherently and cohesively. I I defy anybody to think of a country that could have done what Germany did in that in that period. Yeah, mistakes were made, but they were pretty small compared to what other people mistakes other people would have made. And then I saw Soviet communism collapse. We were all we drank the Kool Aid Mm. too much. Mm -hmm. We all thought, yeah you know, and Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. And, you know, one system has one. And everybody's going to happily share the same system. The world, you know, all the world's authoritarian countries are just going to clamor for uh, democracy. That was the same with the so-called Arab Spring that we thought. And it's been an absolute rude awakening that this is not what's happened. In Mm. fact, if you see uh, um, Freedom House, the American uh, NGO that has got this sort of annual democracy report. Democracy has been going down um, in terms of the the different matrices that they use uh, for the last 10 or 15 years um, across the beast. And and obviously, you've now got in the United States and in the legacy and the future threat and the present threat of Donald Trump, you have the, the land of the free uh, teetering with with fascism and with uh, the dismantling of its own constitution, so that doesn't uh, engender in the world enormous amounts of faith in democratic systems. Sometimes, you know, looking at it from from the UK, I wonder whether sort of you know Germany isn't the last stand. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to journalist and author John Kampfner. Just picking up on that point, um, John, the legacy of World War Two, you know, does that still dictate their foreign policy, the sensitivities, how they behave as a nation towards countries like Russia, as you mentioned at the outset? Um, are they always kind of seeking that non-confrontational side of the argument? Yeah, and to be honest, and, and uh, you know, I hope I don't cause offence to your uh, listeners, um, it's also a beef that one should have uh, with certain Irish policies as well. Peace is and and uh, pacifism is wonderful. War is terrible, but war is never the worst thing, in my view. War is the second worst thing. The worst thing is dictatorship, 
um, and other other violations. And this, I've had so many arguments with otherwise wonderful German friends uh, in recent years that um, the issue was never NATO. The issue is not, and of course the West has made you know, no 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 shortage of errors. Uh, not least hubris, not least from 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 the Brits um, and the Americans, but the Germans became, in my view, incredibly complacent mm. on that front. They just thought, oh, you know, give peace a chance and all that sort of stuff. Well, you know, sorry guys, the world isn't as you want it to be. Putin uh, has been poisoning, locking people up, shooting people, invading uh, Georgia a long time ago, invading Ukraine. This isn't the first invasion. It's the second invasion of Ukraine, the first taking place in 2014. And the West was asleep on the job. And we somehow thought, oh, well, you know, he's going to stop there or, you know, there's too much money to be made in exporting stuff. So for Germany now, it's a really, really pivotal moment. It's a, it's a rude awakening. A lot of people have made the shift now, mm. but still some haven't. And that's a, a very, very interesting point because it, it just it gets to the heart of their influence and their importance to the European project. OK, so we often think very blithely that the reason why they're important is because of their size. It's not just that. It's their role in the EU structures, the operational expertise they have at running that system. As you say, they're always looked at for their model of reunification. Wasn't perfect, but certainly got a lot right. Their their role in the refugee crisis. So yeah. that contribution uh, at the EU level, do you think that that has been so influential that it swayed the European policy on foreign policy to a kind of pacifist extreme? To a degree, yes. But I do think this was um, a pan-European problem. Um, and don't forget, Emmanuel Macron only a year or two ago was declaring NATO brain dead. Mm. Um, everybody was sort of saying, well, what's the point of NATO? And it was actually the the three small Baltic states and some of the Nordic countries and some of the Eastern European countries, not least the Poles, who were saying, you guys, you do not understand um, the the roaring bear next door um, and, and what can happen. Now, you know, that was then. Now, what is so interesting, uh, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, three days after um, Putin invaded, did his famous uh, turning point Seitenwender speech, which was remarkable for its uh, its time, committing Germany to two percent of spending on the on the military of of Germany's GDP, huge injection of a hundred billion euros into defence spending. But it was more than the facts; it was the psychology. Mm. Because to your previous point about the legacy of the Second World War, the idea of I mean, no no self respecting German would have gone into the army. You know, the Bundeswehr was the kind of place that sort of weirdos. Um, went into. Nobody became uh, military experts. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be pro-war to be a military expert. In fact, some of the some of the best disarmament people are military experts, but you have to know the situation. And one of it was interesting. On I was talking to a military historian in Berlin um, who was saying one of the problems that they had at the start of Putin's invasion was that there were very few people you could put up on TV to explain in just comprehensible terms for viewers mm -hmm. what was going on, you know, what bits were being invaded and what bits of of infantry was being moved in one direction or another, what this um, offensive mean 
etc because it was always regarded as at best niche and at worst a sort of uh somehow some sort of characterization of being a sort of militaristic far-right person mm. and that's all changing now um and you know i don't say this with any pleasure um but it's really really important the great paradox of germany is i just think it's an incredible bulwark of democracy its constitution its systems compare it to the the three years of buffoonery under boris johnson here i use the term consistently grown up yeah of of germany it really um took its democracy so so seriously in in federal level and at regional level and yet it was so poor at understanding that sometimes in extremists you have to defend democracy by military means. Well, you've mentioned uh, Boris Johnson there just to, to finish up. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on incoming Prime Minister Liz Truss. How do you think she's going to view the Irish question? <laughs> the Well, I mean, uh, what happens uh, over the next few days will be obviously hugely affected by the Queen. Um, but she she could go either of two ways. It's interesting. She is clearly, uh, during the lead Tory leadership campaign, she was beating the Brexit drum, being incredibly anti-European and that kind of thing. Um, and she will continue in that way. But will she be just a little bit cleverer mm. um, that Johnson in understanding that there's only so much uh, hubris and rhetoric uh, you can... Uh, you know that will get you only so far. What matters is uh, is is deeds, and she is eventually, eventually going to have to come on an even keel with 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 Europe. Indeed, and, and and you know we've got we've we've all got to grow up. Yeah, well, we'll we certainly watch this space with interest. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's journalist and author John Campner. John, thank you so much for your very valuable insights today. Pleasure. Well, thanks for tuning in. That's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we also broadcast as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Jojo Cardoso on sound. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email takingstock at newstalk.com. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.